Hi, this is Billy Baker, author of We Need to Hang Out, and you're listening to Pints with Jack. A pleasure is full grown only when it is remembered. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 13. Jaws, Out of the Silent Planet, Chapter 12. Welcome, everyone, here on Pine to Jack. We're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm Matt, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Andrew and David. This season, we find ourselves among the stars, reading through the first of Lewis's science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. And listeners, I know I said this last time, which I led that episode as well, but this this one is filled with so much wisdom. Both of them, I mean, if we would have had this all last week, you guys would not have been able to handle the amount of stuff that Lewis was throwing at us. We wouldn't have been able to handle it. And so I'm excited we separated these two chapters. And even just that quote of the week, a pleasure is full grown only when it is remembered. I mean, don't you guys want to know what that's like referring to? And there was another one I almost chose. There I drank life because death was in the pool. And then Andrew, I'm not going to read it, but he had another quote that we could have done. I mean, this chapter has a lot of good points. And so anyways, we are going to dive into this and we're actually going to, as we said, go to chapter 13. It's going to be a little unique. Uh, I am leading this one because I'd already prepped for this one for last week. And then Andrew's going to be doing chapter 13. So we're going to have a little back and forth going. So I'm excited. Now, before uh, diving in, the title, Jaws. This was very intentionally chosen uh, because, as you're going to see, I'm trying to think how to describe this. There's a creature that they, the Harasa like to go in battle against that is very similar to a shark jaw-like creature. And so that's why we chose the title for this. And there's going to be so much beauty in that too of like right ordering of creation, right relationship with creation. There's just so much in here. Hey, we didn't choose this one actually, right? Yeah, we invited our slackers to vote because I had three choices and I couldn't decide between them. Uh, since these chapters are going to be talking about both love and uh, fighting, one option was Love and War, the 1996 Sandra Bullock and Chris O'Donnell movie. And we also had Predator, the 1987 one with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and then, of course, Jaws from 1975 with Roy Scheider. And I put it to our slackers, which one should we use as the title of this episode? And Jaws won by a landslide. Oh, that's great. Well, gentlemen, welcome this week to the episode. How are you guys doing? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm uh, still riding high. Um, I had a conversation with Diana Glyer on a couple of different matters. But uh, towards the end of the conversation, she just lavished some high praise on our podcast. And I'm, uh, I couldn't agree with her more about our <laughs> own excellence. I mean, I just wanted to, I mean, I would have said reciprocation to her. I mean, I re-listened to her episode and I sent Andrew you a message because it, when you're, when you're interviewing the guests, you don't really get to absorb all of the wisdom because you are in a very active role of thinking about word association. How do I get to the next sentence? How do I bridge this to the next question? How do I make this flow? Do I go down this tangent or not? How are we doing on time? And so you're just not quite as able to just absorb in a passive sense. And so I re-listened to that episode a few days ago and the wisdom she brought, there was, oh, there was just so much goodness in it. 
well, the connecting to scripture, her answers to me on myth versus just straight up truth. I thought she had a brilliant answer. The way she talked about beauty, Christianity leading with beauty mm. versus truth. Mm. I mean, that's something that I think today could be done a lot better. And it's very mm-hmm. much Bishop Barron talks a lot about that. The beauty is a drawing in. So, so much stuff. But anyways, I digress. I fanboy still over her. She's she's marvelous. She's she's good money. Yeah. No, and it's it's worth it. She's the class, uh, certainly the class of of Lewis's Lewis scholarship. But she loved the way that we. She said, "You're teaching a new generation how to read Lewis carefully, page by page." And she commended particularly. She said, "I don't know who's behind how well organized you are." And I'm like, "That's eh, David." <laughs> Batesian rigidity is vindicated. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, but just had really kind things to say about the podcast and what we're doing. And it was just really affirming. I don't do that to brag. I just, for somebody like her who doesn't flatter ever to express, uh, it just felt really, really confirming. Mm, I love it. Yeah. Well, should we jump into the toast, gentlemen? Uh, absolutely, we should. Well, for the common room which we recorded on Valence Dines Day. We drank one of the scotches because Andrew was very gracious and gifted us uh, some for Christmas. And as you remember, that was a very unique one that had very <laughs> polarizing views. Can I just say that there's no such thing as very unique? <laughs> <laughs> unique means one of a kind. Very rare. <laughs> it was strange. Mm. Yes. Weird in the old sense of that word. So this one is not going to be that. We're with much more of a staple. And actually, we went to the opposite extreme. That one was pure, clear. This is quite dark and amber. So I'm excited for it. We're going to be drinking the Dalamore 12 Sherry Cask. I love Sherry Cask. McAllen is a Sherry Cask. Mm-hmm. The color is antique gold. The nose is vanilla fudge, thick cut orange marmalade. This smells a little more like thin cut orange marmalade to me, but I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sherry and get this, this is where my wife starts making or ridiculing my scotch books. Whiff of leather. Nothing will beat though, um uh, cinnamon roll icing. Remember mm-hmm. that, David? So, so Slight dumb. tang of burning tires. <laughs> <laughs> burning tigers. I remember and then wasn't there one that was like this the the sand on a beach or something? Yeah. It was something with yeah. a beach grass. So the body is velvety smooth. The Palette is sherry and spice, plus delicate citrus notes, and its finish is medium with ginger, Seville uh, oranges, and a hint of vanilla. So, and we are toasting today. Um, what what language are we toasting in today? We're doing it in Turkish. Oh, and I'm going to attempt to pronounce this. Sherefe. <laughs> good enough. Sherefe. 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 All right. Well, we're toasting our top-tier Patreon supporter, Donovan Nagel. Donovan, may all your ways this week be blessed. May, uh, whether you observe it or not, may you be uh, experiencing a holy Lent. And may the blessing of God and his angels be upon you today and this week. So, Sherefe. 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 Hmm. I like that. Mm. So do I. That's nice. Yeah, I'm going to call that one a yeah, winner. Good quality. Yep. Well done, Andrew. Better than my scotch gifting abilities. <laughs> I don't know if we had a winner. 
the body is velvety smooth. Um, it says the nose is vanilla fudge, but it's kind of a thick tasting. Mm. Ooh, a All couple right. of drops of water and the mm, does it open the up? Sherry really comes jumping out. All right. Oh, I'll put a little, <laughs> I'm gonna put some. I just <laughs> put some Spindrift here. lemon, like three drops. I figured that would do the same thing. <laughs> oh wow! What a peasant. <laughs> Oh, good scotch is wasted <laughs> on our young boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, come on, give us the story recap so far in a hundred words or less. Ransom finds himself on an unexpected journey, transported against his will by Weston and Divine to a foreign planet, Malacandra, where he is intended for an offering or a sacrifice. He was able to escape Weston and Divine, and he found himself among one of the local species, the Harasa. Last week, he found himself being, quote-unquote, with them and doing local life. Additionally, we learned about the Melichondrian hierarchy, or at least a lot more of it. Their Harasa, their Cerrone, their Pfiffaltrigi. Never going to get that. In addition, there's Oyarsa, a supreme being, and his son, Maladil the Young, in addition, there are Eldil that are like uh, angel-type creatures. Uh, that's yeah. not right. The Oyasa is the archangel of the planet. Maleldil is Jesus. Yeah. Oh, I thought Oyasa was like God. Nope. The Father. Nope. nope. Ah, look at that. Well, we'll just leave that little discussion in. Nice little okay. fix. <laughs> I'm okay we're, looking We're back. teaching people to read carefully. Is that what we're doing, Andrew? <laughs> Not today. <laughs> this is this is like a, a personality thing, which is I never care about details. I've always been like a big picture person. So when uh-huh. I read a chapter, I'm like, what are the three big themes? What are four big themes? But I never remember names. I can get through an entire book and like barely remember the main characters' names. <laughs> Because I'm just enjoying progressing through. I mean, it's terrible, which is why this whole word game, David, that we're probably that we're doing is kind of fun way to reveal my lack of attention to detail. Well, since we've already achieved that today, I'm going to say let's skip the philology so far section <laughs> and <laughs> let, let's just get it stuck into chapter 12. So in chapter 12, the philosophical discussion that we really got to unpack in this last week's episode continues. And so it begins with a question on war, progresses to food, continues to be getting children, takes a stop at pleasure, and then finishes with a convo on fallen and bent creatures. So there's there's a lot in this section. And so I'm excited. I'm giddy to us for us to unpack this because I'm curious for your, some of your wisdom, Andrew and David. And so let's dive in. So let's start with this idea of war. You know, Ransom asks whether or not there's war among three species on Malachandra. Then Hoy is confused by this question and asks, why would they fight each other? So Ransom pushes a little further and says, well, what if they needed food? You know, a scarce resource, essentially. And there's this beautiful response that he says, if the other Hana wanted food, why should we not give it to them? We often do. Ransom obviously is confused by this and keeps pressing. What if there just isn't enough food? But Maladel will not stop the plants from growing. Another beautiful response. Before we get to the part on begetting children and pleasure, you can probably see where it's leading. 
let's just pause. You know, I, I really appreciated this and the innocence of Hawaii and the culture as a whole. And I was reminded here of an Andrew. I don't know if you remember this from our conversation with Diana, but remember when she mentioned in that conversation, leading Christianity, leading with beauty. Mm-hmm. This reminded me of that, like Lewis doing that. You know, I, I was, when I was reading this alone, I was, I was thinking to myself, this just seems like a beautiful worldview that's being presented here right now, like a right relation with creation, um, a right, beautiful interaction between three different creatures, sharing, trusting into divine, knowing that you'll be provided for surrendering. Like there was just so much beauty to it. There's a, a real harmony um, going on in this, in this world. And, you know, I'm still, and maybe that should have been my listener question. I'm still wondering if this is a fallen world. Um, hmm. Is there, you know, because there is still the, the possibility of a few, there are some bent uh, now. And so it doesn't seem to be a perfect world. There are predators and there's death, right? I wonder if spiritually there's something else going on. It's a different kind of economy here in Malacandra. So, and yeah, there's certainly a beauty in the harmony that's, that exists. And that's part of what, what Ransom longs for. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that soon. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting conversation of longing, but I'm going to steal that word for, as we continue in this book, harmony. I like that. Well, and remember that beauty is something that's very motivational for Jack, right? Beauty Mm -hmm. produces longing and uh, it's weight of glory, right? We don't want to just see beauty. We want to enter into it. And of course, God is the ultimate beautiful, right? He's the ultimate beauty and the the creator of beauty. And so um, it proves my thesis once again that everything in Lewis leads to, leads to, (laughs) <laughs> I was wondering what the pause was. Well, it leads to Till We Have Faces, but it's Till We Have Faces because that's Lewis's, uh, I think that's Lewis's kind of best um, statement. I think that's his constitutional statement. So, yeah. Now on to the meat of the section. So as he's having this conversation and he's discussing about the scarcity and he mentions that Maladil will provide, he pushes on and he, he says, talks about the beginning of children, but what if you have more children? And, and that's when he tra- he gets to that point where we get to the original quote of pleasure. You know, isn't it pleasurable to beget children? Thus, wouldn't they want to do it more? And alluding to the idea that it could lead to an excessive amount, there could become scarce resources, and then this could lead to the a, a war. You know, that's what he's trying to push here. Mm-hmm. And it's in this section that we learn about this this unique view of pleasure, particularly in the context of sexual love. And so, gentlemen, I really want to lean on you guys a bit here to unpack this and to wrestle with if we think Lewis is right with this way of describing. Like, is it even realistic what he describes? Is this what you think God intended of a non-fallen form of pleasure? Or is this just him trying to put some... So I'm a little bit curious of all this, but first, let me just start very directly with the question, you know, what is this view of pleasure that we are presented with by Hoy, uh, as he's describing it. Hoy, yeah. Hoy. <laughs> Before we do that, at the bottom of the first uh, first page of 12, he says, why should we have more young? So they only have, what are they, do they only have one baby? Is that right? One or two, it seems. And I looked one this up, two. that okay. you only need a replacement rate of 2.1 children to maintain a population. Of course you, of course you looked it up. And so, 
So it's not only Malad. So the harmony comes, the lack of war comes, not only because Maladil has provided enough, but because the sexual impulse, which is so twisted in our world, is not twisted in Malakandra, even though it's a great pleasure. Mm. And so the although they enjoy be making and begetting children, they only have one or two. And so it doesn't seem like it's a real difficulty for them to restrict that pleasure. And, you know, you think of, of uh, mere Christianity where you know, Lewis talks about the sexual instinct and brings that great metaphor of uh, <laughs> being in a crowded room with a strip tease of a seven course meal, right? Uh, if if a, It's a steak tease. It's a steak tease. Yes. It's a <laughs> New York strip tease. It's what it is. <laughs> But he said, if you had a country where they did a strip tease of food, you would say that there's something wrong with their appetite for food. In the same way, there's something wrong with our appetite for sex. And it seems like there isn't that same disproportionate um, uh, wrong impulse about sex uh, there on Malacandra. And that's kind of what leads, I think, into the pleasure discussion. Mm. And before we get there, when I first read this, I was actually a little bit shocked because I thought if we're in a unfallen or at least a less fallen world, surely there would be more fecundity. There would be more life, not less, not just simply maintaining the population, but overflowing. I didn't think about the, that. That's the very pro-life, very Catholic side of me kicking in. But I, th I think that response is looking at the wrong point that Lewis is making. It's looking at the wrong element of this equation. It's about a natural form of continence, a natural form of, uh, of appropriate... Uh, sexual response and begetting of children. Mm -hmm. And Ransom even mentions that he knows that or even on earth, there are some lower animals that don't mate that often and are even monogamous. And when I was in uh, Australia, I remember I heard that the, some of the penguins there, they were monogamous. And it's also really cute if you ever get to see it, mm -hmm. uh, when they rush up from the water and they go to and find their, their hole with their mate. Before they go in, the male serenades the lady. He actually, he actually sings. Aww. It's the most adorable thing in the world. I'll try and put some Aww. YouTube links in there. Well, and while you're at it, um, uh, redbirds, cardinals, when they're courting or when the female is pregnant, the male feeds the female. And they're yeah. also monogamous. I, I got Marie in a very similar way. You know, you feed, feed that girl a, a, a nice dinner <laughs> and she's very happy. Uh, Works for me in Christmas. <laughs> but, but the idea that the, that the sexual impulse, the natural sexual impulse is itself constrained naturally. It, it isn't a, a battle with the will. And this is something that Lewis mm -hmm. talks about in some of his other works. I want to say it's the problem of pain where he talks about what an unfallen man would be like. And one of them is mm -hmm. the fact that his lower appetites would be far better regulated, and wouldn't, mm -hmm. uh, and his and his passions wouldn't overwhelm his reason. I'm a little bit curious. Do you guys agree with his description of the arc of pleasure? So more or less, he's using it all in this sense of sexual love. So I'm going to tease out really just the beginning of the arc. There's like the anticipation, the beginning. So he describes that here of the courting of the woman, finding the person. Then there's the actual act. That leads to the, I mean, I don't want to say leads to pleasure because the beginning part was pleasure too, but there's the actual act it's building to, maybe part two in this case, the beginning of children. But then there's the post act, which is, is still pleasurable, which is the raising of children. And then there's the, the end act of like remembering it and then turning it into wisdom and songs. Like, 
I have read articles, psychologists talked about like a trip. Let's use that as pleasure. The beginning, that's literally actually almost said the same arc that a trip is optimized when you spend the month to leading up to getting excited about it. Like it leads to joy getting excited about it. Then you have the Mm -hmm. actual trip that is very pleasurable itself when you're on your vacation. And then the remembering the times with your family, your friends of the trip is also Mm -hmm. equally as enjoyable. And so I did like the arc overall. Um, and I thought there was a lot of wisdom to it. I don't know if I like think it's the perfect description of it, but I actually thought it was pretty good. But I'm curious your guys' thoughts. I don't think it's equally as enjoyable, as you said. Um, I think along with Lewis, um, and I'm not trying to gang up, but I think that one of the, what Lewis says is the pleasure itself is augmented by the anticipatory pleasure and then mm-hmm. by the nostalgic pleasure, Right this looking forward and looking back on it are like an illumination in a in an old manuscript right it adds to the very words it adds beauty to the words and then a pleasure remembered with someone else or a pleasure anticipated with someone else adds to the actual pleasure and sometimes those visits that we have only last a few days but they seem like they're longer because the pleasure is larger by having the looking forward and the looking back on it. Corbin Scott Carnell or Scott Carnell um, wrote a book. I need to look up the title. Sorry, um, but he talks about looking backwards on pleasure, and he uses the word nostalgia, which is kind of dismissive in our age. But um, Corbin Scott Carnell. But I think that you're you're onto something. The pleasure is added to by the pleasures of anticipating and the pleasures mm-hmm. of reflecting. Well, Lewis in Surprised by Joy quotes Chesterton when he speaks about the uh, uh, the slow maturing of old jokes. Yes. That mm-hmm. when you when you have a joke among friends, it's funny, and when you're still talking about that joke twenty years later, and every time you get together, you riff on it. Mm-hmm. It adds something to that experience. And just think of the three of us. Think of the first time we each met. Didn't think that we would be here years later working on a project like this. And we've Mm -hmm. actually come across this idea already in Lewis's best book. Please take a sip. (laughs) The Great Divorce. Because if you remember- We haven't done that one in a while. We haven't. I figured it was setting the glass down. <laughs> you mean but, your favorite? I'm I'm happy to toast your favorite, but I won't <laughs> toast it as your as the best. <laughs> anyway, in that book, we have this idea come up several times about the idea of heaven and hell being retrospective, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think it's the same thing that's going along here. Mm-hmm. Well, and that happens until we have faces retrospectively. She looks back and she says. <laughs> Oh, I should have seen all along that the gods really loved me, right? And so because Lewis start had the starter idea in The Great Divorce, he then finishes it masterfully in his best book. <laughs> um, and actually, kind of a sidelight, I'm, I'm hoping that my plans will work out in April to attend. Uh, there's a ballet of, of Till We Have Faces by a, a Chicago ballet company called Ballet 5-8. And uh, Jeremy and Juliana Slager have been, you know, marvelous friends to the show. And the Chicago performance, uh, their hometown performance is April 22nd. I'm supposed to preach the next morning in Washington, D.C. So I'm looking at getting up really early on Sunday and flying out. But I'm hoping to go. They've invited us to have a, b- a booth or a tape. And that would be the first time the three of us are all, are all together. And if, if we're all able to make that happen. 
which is just further proof that Till We Have Faces is the best book because it's the only one most powerful enough to unite us geographically. <laughs> Listeners, keep that. I, I I do sadly know I will be in San Diego that weekend. But if you guys both go, we should announce that. Listeners, I mean, there's probably a lot of people that have access to Chicago. And so there's a chance that they'll kind of cool 10, 15, 20 people all there and do a little pint with Jack pre, I don't know what time the show is at, but either pre thingy or posting at a bar nearby and just pre. catch up. But if I'm getting up, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm at the airport at 4 a.m. <laughs> Good morning. Let's do a pre thingy. That's April 22nd, right, David? The Chicago show is April 22nd. Perfect. And David, I'm sure we'll post the link. The world premiere is in Michigan, uh, near Detroit. Yeah, I think in Troy. And they're yes. also performing in Atlanta and somewhere else. Oh, in Ohio. So I tried all four performances and the only one I can possibly make on my budget and everything else is the Chicago one. But um, so I'm hoping to maybe spend a week at the Wade uh, before that mm. and then end that week with a very short night of sleep. I love it. Well, the, the one last thing I want to say here is, um, well, uh, sorry, there's two more things, but they're great. Um, <laughs> there's a really beautiful analogy here that I thought really hit this home, his poem analogy. And he says, you know, imagine you read a poem and there's an incredible, let's just say stanza in there. I don't even know if I'm using the right language. I'm really trying to pretend like I know what I'm talking about. Craw. Craw. <laughs> really beautiful craw in there. In, in this line and you and you love it. But if you were just to have that line without any of the before and the after, and let's just say you read that same thing over and over and over and over and over, you would actually lose the beauty of it. It's only in the context of the beginning and the line and the after that it, it, it saves the beauty. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Imagine if you, you know, they describe the whole arc of the beginning of courting to the end of raising kids to the pleasurable act of beginning. Imagine you just... Begat, 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 and forget, didn't even think about the beginning part of that. Or imagine, let's go to our vacation. You did vacation, 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 vacation. You had no anticipation, no nostalgia. You just went one from the next to the next. We all would agree you would just lose its appeal really fast. And so I also just think there's a lot of wisdom here. I love that analogy, and I think it's beautiful. I had a priest friend who, uh, the day that he would get back from his vacation, the first thing he would do when he would get to his office of the church is book his next vacation. <laughs> In order to ameliorate, you know, to lessen some of the pain of the re-entry and to have something um, to look forward to. I think also when you talk about the begetting, it's really clear that what we need is Lewis's distinction between Eros and Venus, right? It's the falling in love and the sexual act, but it's Eros and Venus together, kind of like the god of the mountain together with Ungat is what you need because mm -hmm. Lewis's best book. And joined together with Storge, since that makes up the nine-tenths of most happiness. Yes, absolutely. And and what Lewis was surprised to find in the writing of the book um, was that he could have Eros for somebody with whom he had Philia. And so it's in the it's in the composition of Till We Have Faces and then in the publication of The Four Loves, I think. That's the kind of the arc of Joy Davidman being all four loves for Lewis. But I think that you're right that there's this anticipatory pleasure. There's the physical act, but the physical act doesn't occupy a whole lot of a huge amount of time. But there's the stitching around it that also add to it. So yeah. And that craw, I think that if you read a Shakespearean sonnet, that ending couplet. That closing couplet is the thing that really kind of brings the whole poem together. And when you read the rhyming couplet at the end, 
the 13th and 14th line of a sonnet, it makes you immediately go back and want to reread the sonnet if it's a good one. Malcolm Geith's sonnets do this excellently. Mm. And so it's only in the ending of the sonnet that you really know what the sonnet is about. And then you want to go and fully understand the pleasure of the sonnet now that you know where it was going. Right. And so that's, I think, Lewis brilliantly kind of capturing, capturing what happens with pleasure. Mm. I actually had a question about one of the lines when speaking about what the poets teach you. Uh, Hoy draws this distinction between two words. It says Hoy seemed to be saying that everyone would long for it, wunderlong, but no one in his senses could long for it. Thun- Schlunthalein. <laughs> what do you think he's actually saying here? Is it changing based on the object, whether it's future or past? Is he talking about Zenzucht? What do you reckon? Hmm. When I had read this, because he talks about how he, you know, Lewis doesn't actually fully clarify. He goes, there's these two words and I couldn't quite distinguish the difference between the two, but they both were kind of like a longing. I personally interpret it as one is like the healthy longing, the one we think of that we see until we have faces with longing, the one we think of with joy and surprised by joy. And then the negative one, I really interpret it as like a covetedness of ravenous desire. And so you can have a beautiful longing for the whole arc and journey of begetting children or pleasure, and you can have like a coveting desire. That's how I kind of said, because one sounded negative and one sounded positive, but he couldn't distinguish between the two. Hmm. Well, you know, to go back to, you know, the idea of a poem, there's a marvelous line in, um, the expensive spirit in the waste of shame. It's, I think, Sonnet 129. And he says, a bliss in proof and proved a very woe before a joy proposed behind a dream. And he's talking about lust. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well, to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. And that's a great line. We all know about how betraying, uh, how, how traitorous, uh, lust is, you know, um, a bliss and proof improved a very well before a joy proposed behind a dream. Great line. And then the coda is the wry comment. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Great line puts the whole thing in context. But if I were just to read you the closing couplet, you wouldn't have any idea what I'm talking about. And so while one could long for or would long for the reading of that great line and indeed wants that line and can't wait to get to that part in the sonnet. It's the rest of the sonnet that really sets it up. And so while one would long to hear that one line in isolation, no one could long for that because the line in isolation would become meaningless. So that's maybe about as close as I can get. I don't know. Does that make any sense? That makes sense. I was wondering also if it was a question of diminishing returns. Everybody would long for it, but they couldn't actually keep longing for it mm. in and of itself. Because if we are talking about Zenzut, it points further up and further in, upper and outer. Okay. So then, because um, this is written in 38 and it's 15 years later. No, it's um, 48. It's 12 years later or so, 14 years later, that Lewis ends Surprised by Joy by saying... Um, what then of joy, it serves only as a pointer to something other and outer, right? And so he develops this idea of joy as not being an end unto itself, 
Mm -hmm. right? And as Lewis tried to find joy, I think what he was surprised by and surprised by joy was how useless joy was. And joy as an end to itself would always disappoint and always let down. Um, but joy pointing towards love, especially divine love, is always going to serve its purpose. And Lewis uses the the, um, the the analogy at the end of Surprised by Joy that when you're lost in the wilderness and you come to a signpost, you can't help but stare at the signpost. It's great. <laughs> it's marvelous. But it's not the signpost we want. It's the destination that we want. And so to see joy as a signpost, I think that hmm. even though he may not realize it until Joy Davidman comes on the scene and he begins falling in love with her, I think that there's a sense of, he certainly has a sense of the diminishing returns of joy. And he knows that as much as he had been seeking joy, joy wasn't the thing that he really did seek. So I think you're really onto something there, David. And the other thing that he says is that it can't be manufactured. It's not something that you can make happen. Sure. And he tried, you know, he tried and tried and tried. So do we land on a conclusion of like, a healthy longing versus a non-healthy longing is what we're thinking is a distinguishment. And a healthy longing is one that points towards the right end. No, I, th I think it's, I think it's more to do with the nature of the longing itself rather than saying one's good and one's bad. I don't see anything in the text that implies that one is good and one is bad. It's something, I think we're, we're, we're learning something about this longing itself in terms of our ability to pursue it, manufacture it, engage with it. Sure. And this distinction between good or bad, um, although the text says that there were, there were almost in opposition, these senses of longing, I think good, better, best, mm. right? And so longing was good um, because it led Lewis out of this world, out of himself, out of atheism, but longing itself didn't bring him to where he needed to go. Longing only pointed to what he lacked. And so longing is good, but arriving love is better, right? It's kind of like saying all of Lewis's good books are good. Great Divorce <laughs> is better than most until he faces his best of all, right? And that's because uh, it fulfills this sense of longing. I've had to refill this glass because of you. <laughs> I need to fly back to England and get another sampler kit. I fully agree with what you guys are saying now, and I completely scrapped my comment earlier of like a proper versus a non-proper. And I don't know why this didn't dawn on me. It wouldn't make sense that he has a healthy word for longing and unhealthy because he doesn't even register bent creatures. So there, there really wouldn't probably be a negative word for this. I think your description you just said is correct of like a good, better, best kind of thing because mine doesn't make sense from a creature that literally can't rationalize bent creatures barely and has never met one to somehow have in their vocabulary, super negative word for longing. Like I, I use the word covet it. I mean, that doesn't sound like that would be a part of their vocabulary. So I rescind everything I've said and I like what you guys and, said. Well, and also I think that one of the real brilliances of this book is that it shows us this world where things are much better in proportion. Even if it is a fallen world, even if there is a curse on this world, it's not disproportionately bad. And so this sense that we have to contrast things between good and bad, I think is maybe part of our fallen nature. And remember that it's the silent planet. And part of what Ransom is doing is learning how to speak, not only Malachandran or Old Solar, right? 
He's also learning how to speak the language of emotion, the language of longing. He's really learning how to be in right relation, as we'll see soon, with Oyarsa. He came there thinking that he should be teaching Christian truths, but he's actually learning them mm-hmm. and learning how to be a better man. And you can see in his grappling and in his growth and development from being this kind of shabby philologist on holiday, he's going to become the director in that hideous strength, right? He's going to become the Fisher King. So he's on his way to this kind of magisterial Arthurian role. And some of how he gets there is this thoughtfulness with which he's approaching things. Well, all right. The final part of this conversation, I just mentioned a second ago, this concept of a bent creature. And so this is where this ultimately leads. He finishes this discussion and they sound perfect, honestly. And so he asks them, well, what if you have someone who's not following the natural instincts, who's a bent creature, which would make perfect sense to us from the silent planet, because every single one of us is bent. And he asks Hoy about that. And Hoy mentions that he's never met one, but he has heard on very, very rare occasions that there is this idea of a bent creature. And so I'm curious what you guys made of this section. You know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, in the beginning, they thought of them as way inferior because they were scientifically not very advanced, at least allegedly in these preconceived notions. And as we're learning, I would argue they're superior creatures than the bent fallen ones. And so we're kind of getting this picture of non-fallen versus fallen, you know, as, as in this section, what were you guys thinking of um, when you read this? Hmm. Realizing how messed up we are. <laughs> yeah. the, the line is, it was not they, but his own species that was the puzzle. That the Rossa should have such instincts was mildly surprising. But how came it that the instincts of the Rossa so closely resembled the unattained ideals of that far divided species man, whose instincts were so deplorably different? And then he asks the question, what was the history of man? And the Christian response to that is, the fall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the way, listeners, I need to admit that I stepped all over David's notes because I didn't read them. And the whole thing in Mere Christianity about the out-of-proportion sexual drive, David already, of course, had that in his notes. So it's uh, fine. I came late to his pre-planned brilliance. So <laughs> happy, to, happy to admit that I, that I swiped um, from him, but I did it spontaneously. Um, I stand on the shoulders of, the, of David's intelligence whenever I speak on this podcast. Wow. Um, There's also, I think, this sense of, and Matt, you said they're not as scientific, although the Fiffeltricky are are masterful engineers Mm -hmm. and probably come as close to science as one could get. I think that um, there's some philosophy amongst the Cerrone. And I think that our idea of science. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you, but I really want to hit this point because I think this is interesting. I agree with you reading this. And so maybe let me phrase that because I want to get your thoughts on this. Now that we know a lot about them, let me put it this way. Now that we know about the different ones, because I agree with you, philosophically, they're quite intelligent. They're not fallen. They understand space travel and all of that incredibly well. They seem to understand the universe almost better than us. What do you, is it just the naivety of divine and Weston or what framework are they applying that makes Weston and divine think they're inferior? Is there any framework that actually makes them inferior or is it just naivety of Weston Divine. That's, I guess, what I'm curious. Like, what worldview are they operating under? Because I agree. I don't think they're inferior in any way, shape, or form, even scientifically. So there's kind of a, a theological 
uh, greenhouse gas effect in Thulkandra. The fallenness of Thulkandra is so profound that it separates Thulkandra, Earth, from the rest of the solar system. And as soon as they break the bounds, you know, as soon as they get out of the third heaven, you know, and break the, across the lunar boundary, which is, you know, from the medieval period, one of the great boundaries, Ransom is shocked to find how alive the universe is, and that's why it's not called space. And so you've got this kind of intercommunication happening between the planets and with the sun and with the angels. Angels are just showing up, you know, and, and making announcements and things. And so part of what Weston and Divine are suffering from is this kind of theological global warming, this theological greenhouse gas. Because they are shut off, they only see things their way and they're only their own now centered. And they don't have a harmony even between the one species of now, whereas in Malachandra, they have three species of now with, with real harmony that's working. And so part of that is the cut-offness that we have on Earth because we are subject to our own Oyarsa, our own archangel, and that's Lucifer, that's Satan, right? And mm -hmm. so we are under kind of his spell, and that's part of why Western and Divine have such limited thinking. It creates this isolation and solipsism. This only, there's only man, and man is the only thing important. And so they go out into uh, space to make more gold for themselves and to conquer another planet for the species. And it's part of the systemic thinking within the satanic system. And I think that's part of what Lewis is completely thinking about, especially in the late 30s, early 40s. I would say that we find out why very early on in the book. Because if you remember how Weston responds to Ransom's presence, this guy, you know, he's not even a scientist. It's very clear what he values, and that's science and technology. And when you initially come to Malacandra, where are the flying cars? Where are the huge buildings? Mm -hmm. This is what he's expecting from an advanced race. Kind of reminds me of Star, Star Trek Insurrection when Data goes crazy and they've been observing this, this civilization that seems very primitive and they tell the Star Trek crew, oh, we couldn't fix his positronic brain. And they're shocked. And they said, just because we don't necessarily embrace it, all of the things that you value doesn't mean that we don't understand them. Mm -hmm. mm. I like that. And like I say, an absence of flying cars and tall buildings is what makes them think that they're primitive, imposing their perspective on them. And also we're going to find out as the book goes on, their communication skills, Western Divine's communication skills, aren't that great. And they haven't really been asking very good questions. Absolutely to all of that. We hear this echoed again in Eustace and in Shift, right? that part of their fallenness is they want to pave over Narnia, right? Uh, Joni Mitchell said, pave paradise and make it a parking lot. Um, that's a car park, David. Um, Thank you. Eustace <laughs> wants to go to the, to the, to the local, um, you know, to the local embassy. He wants to modernize Narnia and that's a sign of fallenness. It's not an anti-industrial um, sense in Lewis and Tolkien, although they do really resent the Morris car factory, which sets up shop right around this time and creates all kinds of um, noise and pollution and the ruining of beauty for the sake of progress. The other thing that you said, David, that I thought was really brilliant, it's the silent planet 
And I'm increasingly convinced in the centrality of myth, of story, of telling the tale. And Ransom gets to Malacandra and learns another language and learns at a pace. I mean, you can see how well he's speaking now. Um, these guys will find in a couple of chapters can barely speak pigeon Malacandran. <laughs> um, and it's this idea of communication that was so central to Lewis and Tolkien. And part of it is there's this great poem by Lewis where he says, I thought that at the end of the age, we would know, I would find, you know, a sympathetic uh, heart that could know what a story means. And it's just simply not true. Narrative is dying in the modern, in the modernist period. So in the forties and fifties, they're writing all of these novels and they don't care about a story. And Lewis and Tolkien are trying to, trying to reinvigorate stories. So in some ways, like you said, Weston and Divine can't speak because they are losing the importance of language. This is the weirdest comment I'm ever going to make out of just random. But Andrew, your brilliance just continues to amaze me. And I've just, I was literally, I literally went from your brilliance, <laughs> it went from your brilliance to what a gift it is to have you on the show. And then also I had this weird realization. We've never met in person, right? Right. <laughs> That's so weird to me. I don't know why I thought of that, but I'm like, we've now been on this show talking completely for what two years now and i have never been face to face with you we've never been in the same room uh-huh i'm literally day. like you feel like a kindred spirit and i just thought to myself, absolutely oh, really weird i've never absolutely. met him. So, um by the way david that poem is called um readjustment and it's uh, uh yeah it's fantastic and it's worth linking to now to why we titled this jaws we're about to turn to the hanakra the shark-like beautiful creature. pronunciation matthew very good, right? yes. Really? Yeah. Never say never say that I don't praise you. That was good. Well done. <laughs> it's been like my pronunciation is so bad. My first assumption was that was a sarcastic comment. Of course, that was no. Bad <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> it's okay. It's not one of my strong suits. I don't expect it to be. But anyways, it is interesting how when when it's first brought up in the conversation turns to that ransom, assuming that this creature is sort of evil or bent if we're using the language. And I assume that's because it, it comes across as scary. It seems aggressive. If if I'm remembering the story and the details correctly, he's already encountered it previously. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. there's a fear there due to this, uh, potentially that it can cause death. And what we're going to see here, but then also potentially in the next chapter is just how warped this way of thinking is. And so there's just, there, there's so much beauty in this section, in this chapter, but Beforehand, I want to ask you guys, what's the relationship between Hanakra and Harasa hmm. that we see at least at this stage? Not completely, but right now here. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to describe uh, because the Harasa view the Hanakra as it's definitely dangerous. It's an enemy, but it's also a beloved. Insert Andrew reference mm -hmm. to the Accursed from Till We Have Faces being the best mm -hmm. and the worst. Just thought we'd mm -hmm. save some time. Uh, <laughs> Making my case, Tommy. I'll take a drink. <laughs> yes. Uh, but they also describe it almost as their mascot. Hoy says, we hang images of him, the Hanakra, in our houses. And the sign of all the Hrosa is the Hanakra. I'm just going to suggest that it is as bizarre as Christians having their sign be the cross. A sign of mm. death and execution and suffering 
But he also points out there are worse things than death. He says uh, it's not just the worst thing isn't death roving over the world um, that makes a hanao miserable. It is a bent hanao that would blacken the world. So there are some things worse、mm-hmm. than death. In this case, sin.、Mm-hmm. I don't want to jump ahead, but、uh, I'm not actually sure they even like you're saying. There's there's stuff worse than death. I, I'm just going to tease it right now. We'll go to this next section. It makes it sound like death might be the best thing. Well, that's actually exactly where I was going. It, it's it's a kind of death that gives life. Hoy says, "I do not think、mm-hmm. the forest would be so bright, nor the water so warm, nor love so sweet, if there were not danger in the lakes."、Mm-hmm. And Hoy tells a story of a time when he went up the valley and by this pool that's surrounded by these carved walls, and it feeds into this massive waterfall. And it seems to be in this pool where the Hanakri are born. That's where they that's where they begin. They start there and then they go down、uh, the Handramit." And he says he stood there with Maleldil, and this is the line that we quoted at the beginning. Because of that experience, my heart has been higher, my song deeper. I drank life because death was in the pool.、Mm-hmm. And he says that's the best drink that he's ever going to have, except one, which is when he actually dies.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and let me add one more quote here before you jump in, Andrew. And David, you read part of it, but like I do not think the forest be so bright, nor the water so warm, nor the love so sweet, if there was no danger in the lakes. Like、mm-hmm. there's this beautiful relationship between danger and life. Like、mm-hmm. that was going to be the next question I asked. We're already going there, which I love. Like, what is the number one counter to Christianity? Suffering, brokenness, all that stuff. This is kind of putting a different twist on that. Like you don't have. Beauty, joy, life without death, danger, suffering. Yes, and I think of Brene Brown here, where she talks about you can't have joy without vulnerability and pain. I mean, those two—you just you can't mute one without and have the other. It's just not possible. And so I love this. I'll stop talking because I know Andrew. You probably have a lot you want to say. It, no, it's. I think that I think that you're absolutely you're both absolutely right.、Um, and then there's that quote where he says. Um, at last, it dawned on him that it was not they, but his own species, that were the puzzle. And so,、mm. this perfect relationship with danger, right? What a realization, by the way. Yeah, light bulb on for him. Yeah, and he shows how off kilter we are. So, in Paralandra, the Lewis narrator character goes to Ransom's cottage, and when he's there, an Eldil. Shows up and starts speaking to him, and he sees the Eldil, but he sees the Eldil as truly perpendicular in a way that no person standing on a curved Earth could ever be. And also, this creature is performing this strange dance. I've mentioned it before. He's spinning, he's rotating, he's keeping up in time with the movement of the Earth around the Sun, the spinning of the Earth on its axis, right? And it's the angel. That is the Eldil that is in true relation to up and down and right and wrong, and it's our world that's just twisted. And so, it's I think very insightful for Ransom to see that our world is the puzzle,、hmm. and this world, although it may not be perfect, I'm still not convinced that it's not fallen, but it's certainly much more homo- harmonious as we as we've been saying all episode. That this world is so much closer to how things should be, and even the danger of the hunt, right? Is that's okay? That's just part of the circle of life, or whatever, in in Malakandra. And that danger, even the natural danger, is something that pulls the best out of them. And so they are much more in relationship 
proper relationship to the natural world that Maladil created in the way that, as we'll soon see, that Weston and Divine are completely out of relationship with the natural world, not only our own world, but also with this, with this world. So you guys are totally right. And seeing death mm. rightly in the same way that Hoy sees everything else rightly. It reminds me of the Audrey Assad song, uh, Death Be Not Proud, mm-hmm. where she sings, Death be not proud, though the whole world fear you, mighty and dreadful you may seem. Death, if your sleep be the gates to heaven, why your confidence? That this is, that this is just the mm. next step in the journey. It's what St. Francis said. He called it brother death, mm. right? Mm. And it is far better for me to, you know, to, it's far better for you for me to remain with you, Paul says, but better for me to die and be with the Lord. And so this proper relationship to death. And so if our approach to sexuality is perverted, it probably stands to reason that our approach to death, to aging, right, to relationship is perverted. And of course, that's exactly what we see in our world, but it's not what we see on Malachandra. All right. Well, the final section of this chapter. So it's the end of the day. Ransom and Hoyoy Hoy. are returning home. And as they're walking back, Ransom asks his friend, I think we can use that word now, a question about their meeting. And in doing so, discovers this other kind of creature on Maladel. And we've on Malacandra. Yeah. And we've already briefly mentioned the Eldil. Uh, but what, what Ransom tells him is that when they met, he realized he was Hana because he heard him speaking, but he couldn't see anyone else there. But he noticed that there was some someone else speaking. And remember how la- at the end of last chapter, I think he when he saw the girl speaking, she, he just thought, or the, the, the child, I should say, maybe it wasn't a girl, I don't remember if it was gendered, but um, the youngin speaking, girl, yeah. he saw oh, just a little bit of imaginary playfulness. But in reality, there might have been something else there. And so... What is this something else, Andrew? What are the elder? What do we learn in this section? Well, we kind of come into this relationship again with sight and speech. Mm. Who were you speaking to? And again, what we have here, I have forgotten that part that he always seemed to be speaking to somebody else. Lewis, of course, remembered that that was a detail that he that he <laughs> put in that chapter. And once again, Lewis teaches us how to read carefully. Who are you speaking to? To an elder? What is that? I saw no one. Are there no Eldila in your world? That must be strange. They come from Yarsa. I suppose they're kind of a kind of a now. One can see by looking at your eyes, Haman, that they are different than ours. And so there's this relationship between seeing and speech. And one of the things that is the curse of the silent planet is we don't see the spiritual world well enough. And even those of us who really believe in the spiritual world, half of the world fetishizes angels and the other half um, disbelieves in them. And nobody has this kind of proper sense of what angels might be. Frank Peretti did a, you know, took a stab at it years and years ago in this present darkness. But um, that's another thing that is, we have kind of been blinded to the spiritual world. And what would it be like if we really considered going through our day that what this what the role of the angels and even the devils are um, as we as we go about our lives. Before we wrap up, I have one little nerdy thing that I discovered in researching this, because if you recall, Jesus in this planet is called Maleldil, and there's clearly a relationship linguistically between Maleldil and Eldil. Mm-hmm. 
And ah. I found one suggestion that the mal, because normally we think of the prefix mal meaning bad, like malnutrition. Mm -hmm. But I found one person that was suggesting that it might be the Hebrew word mal, which means king. So maleldil mm. means king of spirits, or if we were to use biblical language, lord of hosts. <laughs> well done, David. So Hebrew descended from old solar. Well, exactly. And I, I will add a slight qualification to this that Lewis said that he chose words that were emotionally, not intellectually suggestive. So take that with a grain of salt. But I, I really do like that explanation. Yeah. Yeah. That may have been... Um, either intentional by Lewis or maybe it had just been in the back of his mind or, you know, just kind of somewhere bouncing around there. That makes some sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we wrap up, we have our question of the week. And the question I want to pose to people, because Andrew's mentioned this a couple of times, do you think it is a fallen world, just like less fallen than us, let's say, or not fallen at all? Like it's it's meant to be like a perfect example of what we were supposed to be. So again, you can email us, contact at pintswithjack.com or go to any of our Pints with Jack social media pages. Type them in. They're all very similar handles, so that'll work. I hear the final call. So before we wrap this up, I want to thank our listeners. We love you guys, our Patreon supporters. We love you even more. Just kidding. <laughs> and particularly our top series supporters who we love the most. Good, better, best. Just <laughs> Matt, Jake, James, Erica, Marvin, Joel, Deborah, Amanda, Thomas, Bud, Bill, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. And we genuinely pray for you guys every Tuesday. Andrew prayed right before this episode for this episode. Uh, and so we want to thank you guys. And so if you enjoy this episode, share it on social media. Rate us on any of the platforms you're listening to. We love those. We love the reviews. We actually read them all. David saves every single one of them. And so we really appreciate that feedback. And join us next time. When we'll, be con when we'll continue. Go. Hit, hit me again, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> please, please leave this in, Taylor, because that is great. I love it. It's because he it's talked about till we have faces way too much. Quite no, right. it's because he threw in an extra word. So it's, you know... I'm, I spend all of my my celebratory life at church going, you know, I didn't write one or in write two. And did I pronounce that word correctly? So what are we supposed to what are we encouraging our listeners <laughs> listen to join to do us now? next time? <laughs> <laughs> when we'll continue going further up and further in. Sheriff? <laughs> Cheers. Sheriff. <laughs>